Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Here's a cool fact: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact: you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome to CoronaPod. In this show, we're going to bring you nature's take on the latest COVID-19 developments. And we'll be speaking to experts around the world about research during the pandemic. We're entering a new era now. We have new COVID strategies. There's some new unknowns and we've got a vaccine. Hello and welcome to CoronaPod. I'm Noah Baker and joining me this week is CoronaPod regular Ewan Calloway. Ewan, how are you? I'm well, how are you doing? Not bad, thanks. So you, as ever, are beavering away writing story after story after story about coronavirus. And the story you're publishing this week is one that's been quite a long time coming about correlates of protection. Now, there's a lot to dig into here, but to start with, can you tell me what we mean when we say correlates of protection? Yeah, so it's looking at COVID-19 vaccines or vaccines in general. And, you know, anytime you have a vaccine unless it's 100% effective, there are going to be people who get vaccinated and unfortunately still get infected. And then, you know, the vast majority of people who are protected by the vaccine. So a correlate of protection is an immune measurement or some kind of measurement or biomarker that tells you which is which, you know, which people are going to be protected and which people might not be. And this is a really important and useful marker for immunologists, people that are designing vaccines to know why? What is it that's so kind of coveted about this measure? Yeah, it's really important. I mean, it's critical, perhaps. And I think probably the most relevant application of knowing a correlate protection for these vaccines is we're in this situation where we moved heaven and earth to conduct quite a large number of large field trials, you know, where you give tens of thousands of people, either a vaccine or a placebo injection, then you follow them to see who gets COVID and who doesn't. And that allows you to directly measure the effectiveness of a vaccine. But we're getting to a stage where it's harder to run trials involving 30, 40, 50,000 people, either because COVID-19 vaccines are available or they're just too darn expensive. And so we want to be able to take vaccines and give them to a smaller number of people and figure out whether they're likely to work or not. Right. So instead of giving your vaccine to tens of thousands of people and seeing how many people are protected, you look instead for um, some kind of biological marker, be that an antibody count or something, which we know through these studies to provide a level of protection which is acceptable, which is what you ultimately use to approve your vaccine. Exactly. You know, in almost all cases for vaccines for viruses, it is some antibody measurement saying, you know, if people produce 
this level of antibody response, they have a strong likelihood of being protected. Probably not a guarantee, you know, that's not how biology tends to work, but, you know, a strong likelihood. And regulators might be willing to say, you know, it looks good enough to deploy in the population, provide, of course, it's safe. You know, we're talking about a measure of efficacy, not necessarily safety here. Right. So at the beginning of our conversation, I said this was a story that's been a long time coming. Vaccines have been around for quite a while now and they've been being distributed. A lot of data has been gathered. And yet it's only now that we're starting to see the first kind of really clear data in humans to indicate what these correlates of protection might be. Why has it taken so long and what are we starting to see now? Yeah, I mean, there, there are a couple of reasons. I mean, the first one is, is kind of a good one. I mean, these, these vaccines, especially the first ones, you know, from, from Pfizer and Moderna were, were so damn successful that it was hard to determine a correlate of protection on them. I, I should explain, one of the most reliable ways that people do it is they, they look in a clinical trial, so a large field trial, and they look at people who got vaccinated but still got infected. We call these breakthrough cases. And they compare them to people who got vaccinated but it didn't get infected. And you try and look at what are the differences in their immune profiles, you know, in antibody levels or something like that, to see if there's a clear threshold above which you get protection and below which you don't. But you need a lot of these breakthrough infections to really get a clear picture of what protects you and what doesn't. And, you know, with these first vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna, they were so successful, especially initially when, when they presented their, their first results, that they just didn't have the data to, 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 to determine a correlate of protection. Now, as these trials have continued, they've had more and more breakthrough infections. And, you know, they have, have gotten a clearer picture. But making these measurements, which are kind of measuring really precisely different kinds of antibodies and, and maybe even other immune markers, it's not a simple matter. You know, you have to do it in a very repeatable manner. Uh, you know, you can't do it in labs all over the country. You kind of want it done in the same facility or, you know, repeatedly in, in the same facility like different times. It's, it's doing a lot of laboratory work on a lot of samples and then doing a lot of complicated statistics on them and then checking your answer once, twice, three times. So that's why it's taking a while to get these answers. And that's even more difficult to do when the thing that the vaccines are protecting against is also a moving target. When you have a vaccine that is designed to fight one particular variant of a virus and now there's new variants that have arrived, it gets really tricky to pick apart all of these reasons that people might have different immune responses, different likelihood of exposure and so on. Oh yeah, completely. You know, I describe these breakthrough analyses as being the main way and I've heard them described as gold-plated but they're not the only way to come up with a correlate of protection. Another way, I guess, that, that was done with meningococcal vaccines, which have been immensely successful in developing new ones, is to say this trial was 70% effective. We're going to draw a line at 70% of like antibody responses, and that's going to be our threshold, our correlate of protection. And it's worked pretty well for getting us new vaccines in this category. So, I mean, there are other ways of doing this, and you're right, it's a, it's a moving target. And something that I heard again and again in some meetings I attended is that regulators might want to kind of err on the side of caution. So when they're identifying these correlates of protection, they might pick something a little bit higher that gives them some wiggle room. So, you know, if you're above this level, you're probably going to be OK. But, you know, when we talk about a correlate of protection, emphasis on the correlate, we're talking about a measurement like an antibody level that happens to correlate with protection. It doesn't mean it explains that protection, right? So you could have a situation where different vaccines have different mechanisms of protection, maybe for Oxford AstraZeneca's 
vaccine T cells are playing a more important role in, in keeping you, especially out of the hospital, whereas maybe for the RNA vaccines, the neutralizing antibodies might be more important. So there's a bit of a little distinction between, you know, kind of a mechanism that's explaining the protection and just like a number that helps you predict whether a vaccine might work or not. Exactly. And I suppose that is really the key here is if there can be some agreement on what this correlate protection is, it doesn't matter so much how it works. The key thing here is that you can take a blood sample, for example, and then very easily analyse the likelihood that that person will be protected based on this one easy to measure biomarker. And that really makes so many things easier to do in terms of developing new vaccines or even fighting variants. It does. It does. I mean, it's hard to tell a scientist that you don't need to understand something, isn't it? And people have told me that maybe we don't need to completely understand the mechanisms of protection. Actually, for most vaccines, we don't, and I wouldn't say we don't have a clue why they work, but we don't really have a good understanding why most vaccines work. That's a statement that people kept telling me over and over again. But even a bit of understanding of how a vaccine works, why it's protecting, will help you make sense of this number you decide is your correlate of protection. But I mean, I think the bottom line, as you say, is that it'll be just useful for humanity to have some way of advancing vaccines without having to run a trial with 30,000 people costing $500 million, right? And so now we have a preprint paper that's gone up, which you've reported on this week from Oxford, which is reporting the first correlates of protection from one of these studies. Yeah. So this is from the team at the University of Oxford, which are developing a vaccine with AstraZeneca. And this is based on the trials, I think, that Oxford was leading in the UK and elsewhere in Brazil and other countries. And so, yeah, it's, it's basically just doing this kind of breakthrough analysis. Unfortunately, it wasn't clear cut. There was a lot of overlap in the immune profiles of, of these individuals. So they had to kind of do some fancy modeling to figure out individually what people's likelihood of being infected was. And, you know, they did this modeling, they combined it with their data and identified thresholds of neutralizing antibody, which are these antibodies that can bind and inactivate viral particles that could lead to protection between 50 and 90 percent. So they're saying that if you have another vaccine and you get an antibody level like this, you can expect to get an efficacy ranging between 50 and 90, depending on what that antibody threshold is, which is, you know, a really powerful piece of information if it's true and if it's reliable. I think there's some questions in the immunology community about how reliable the Oxford prediction will be for other vaccines, but you know that, that's for researchers to determine, you know, and, and regulators to determine. So, but it, it is the first time a, a vaccine developer has come out with this analysis. And I think we should talk about what could be done with those data in a minute. But first, I'm kind of interested to know the Oxford AstraZeneca team have a vaccine that works in one particular way. It's really interesting to me that neutralizing antibodies are the things that they're pointing to here because that is one part of the immune system that seems to respond differently to different vaccines. You know, the mRNA vaccines seem to generate a higher concentration of neutralizing antibodies. The AstraZeneca vaccine seems to produce a higher percentage of T cells, for example. How transferable might this be across different vaccines that work in slightly different ways? Yeah, this is a big, big open question. And I don't think we have an answer right now. And, you know, you're exactly right in which you say that from earlier trials, we know that the Oxford vaccine and even the Johnson & Johnson vaccine doesn't generate these huge levels of neutralizing antibodies that the RNA vaccines like Pfizer's and Moderna's seem to. And that can make you say, oh, maybe the correlates there aren't going to be the same. But before this Oxford work came out, some other groups of scientists basically, you know, they didn't do the, the breakthrough analysis that 
that Oxford has and that others will be doing, they just looked at the efficacies of the vaccines according to their big studies and then compared them to earlier studies showing the immune data that all the studies reported and found a pretty strong correlation between the levels of neutralizing antibody and a vaccine's efficacy. So that's suggesting that maybe neutralizing antibodies might end up being a good correlate for all these vaccines. And that's something that I think the community kind of wants. So we've got this first result that's been published in a preprint. It's yet to be peer reviewed, but it will be looked at very avidly by immunologists around the world. You said that there's likely to be more results coming out from other vaccine manufacturers. What do you see happening in the next couple of months when it comes to correlates of protection? That's a very good question. So the US government you know, has this public-private partnership with a number of pharmaceutical companies. This includes Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, uh, even AstraZeneca. It kind of supported their clinical trials. And so they've got a unified team working on correlates of protection for their vaccines. And I think they want to you know, look at them all, all together. But I know for a fact that you know the Moderna analysis is nearly done. I wouldn't predict when it's going to be out. But I think people are thinking that that's the first one that we're going to see from, from this effort. And then, you know, these are things that vaccine developers and people who are privy to the clinical trial data are working on. But that doesn't mean there's a whole community of scientists out there who don't have something to say and something to contribute. You know, there are lots of people who are looking at public data on vaccine efficacy and immune responses and and saying, hey, you know, this is another way to determine correlate. There are at least two groups that I cite who are working on this, and I know there are more. And, you know, I think regulators are taking it all in. So, yeah, it's a pretty active question. There's just lots of teams working on it right now. So I think we're just going to see a flurry of papers and probably preprints since we are where we are trying to eke out a signal. We as science reporters are going to be excited to see papers and preprints, but many of the rest of the world, they don't care about that bit. They care about when this turns into better vaccines. Or new vaccines. We've got tons of new vaccines just like waiting. These are vaccines that could be made more cheaply, maybe could be more resilient to variants. And some of them have gone through phase three trials and have, you know, funding in place to do that. But a lot of them don't, you know. So I think having a reliable correlate is going to be really important for vaccine equity. And that doesn't mean untested vaccines. That doesn't. It just means getting more vaccines out there that we strongly think are going to perform as well or or hopefully better than the ones we've got now. And you maybe avoid the situation that occurred with CureVac, where you get all the way to the end of your phase three trial and then find out it's not super effective. Perhaps you could nip that in the bud earlier if you have a correlate protection at an earlier stage. Maybe, maybe, though I think people are still scratching their head about CureVac. You know, I mean, you you look and at the levels of neutralizing antibodies that it produced, they were lower, notably lower than those seen by Moderna and Pfizer, the other RNA vaccines, and probably more in the ballpark of Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca. You know, you throw in variants and maybe that's that's where you get the results. In fact, one of the researchers who's trying to take published data and figure out, you know, relationship between antibody levels and correlates of protection, they and their researchers have looked at the CureVac data to try and see if that relationship is there, whether they can understand the reasons for the low efficacy. And, and, and they think that, you know, variants, you know, might have played some role, but they can see in the neutralization data that we shouldn't have expected really high efficacy from that vaccine. So, you know, maybe we have a correlate. 
right? inadvertently. I'm not joking. You know, I think we're getting some useful heuristics is, is a term that somebody used. You know, it's kind of a shortcut to make an educated guess about how things will do. So it's really up to the regulators to decide how to apply this because that's where the, the rubber hits the road. Okay, well, the metric that people may not have heard of, but that is really vital to the future of vaccine development, this is certainly something we're going to be watching moving forward as more studies come out, and hopefully we can hone in on that exact answer. But for now, Ewan, thank you so much. It's been really great to have you on. I hope to speak to you soon. Yeah, thanks. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.